This is a very serious podcast. Check my hair. How's it look? It looks fine to me. It looks like it always does. And to be honest with you, you, whenever you ask, does my hair look okay? I'm always like, it always looks the same. Unless you've literally just rolled out of bed, I see no difference whatsoever, ever. Like uh, you've got the little like rumpled bed head, but then if you've done like, if you've put a brush through it, it looks <laughs> fine to me. I honestly can't tell. Excellent. <laughs> Looking fabulous, the both of us here. Yes, absolutely. All right. All right. Well, Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of Splanknicks. I'm uh, your host, Claire T. Walker. I'm an independent author, and um, I'm also a veterinarian. Some people don't know that, but I take care of animals. Um, this is my co-host, my daughter, Hannah Kubiak. Hannah Hi. is also an independent author, also a uh, theater professional. We're both looking fabulous today, and we are looking forward to <laughs> our July book club episode, which we are recording in August. Mid-August. Yeah, because we just got a little bit behind. We're going to be uh, discussing the book that we read, Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh. Yep. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much. We'll see you in a minute or two. It would be funny if we read a book for the book club, but then we discussed a completely different book. Like, yeah. we are discussing a book that we did not read for the book club. <laughs> yeah, fooled you guys, right? <laughs> He's like, we're going to talk about Gone Girl, even though we've never read it. <laughs> Welcome to Splanknicks, the Society for the Preservation of Literature, the Arts, Numinosity, Culture, Humor, <laughs> Nerdiness, Inspiration, creativity, and storytelling. We're, uh, we're going to talk about Bride's Head Revisited now. Um, it's a great book. It is uh, by Evelyn Waugh. First published, this, this old edition of it that I have here, uh, published in 1944. Yeah, copyright 1944. So uh, right as the war was ending, um, and... It's uh, mostly a flashback. The way this book is structured, hmm. it's interesting. It comes in a, um, in a prologue and an epilogue and two books in the middle. The prologue and the epilogue take place in the present day, which is towards the end of World War II. It's about uh, Charles Ryder. He is a captain in the army at the time the book opens, and, um, and he reminisces on his days as an Oxford uh, University student and friend of this wealthy family um, who live at Brideshead Mansion or Brideshead Castle in the English countryside. First of all, I love this book. It's one of my favorite books. There's this theme that goes through the book about this place called Arcadia. The first time we see that phrase is, um, I should have just found the spot in here, but it's... Well, it's the title of book one. Yes, yeah, the title of part one, Et in Arcadia Ego, which means I too am in Arcadia. So it's a, it's a phrase that in Charles Ryder's rooms at Oxford, he has all sorts of ostentatious uh, trappings, basically. And one of the sort of like centerpieces that he has is this skull with the phrase et in arcadia ego emblazoned on it which is a really cool image the the skull which is usually thought of as a symbol of death and then this 
um, Arcadia, which, according to The Brideshead Revisited Companion by David Cliff, Arcadia was celebrated in ancient times as a rural paradise where one could find innocence and true understanding. Um, so the, origin, the original Arcadia was a central area of the Peloponnese in Greece, and it is actually mountainous and dangerous, but there's a people there who exhibit generosity, simplicity, and contentedness. Um, the point of the motto, et in Arcadia ego, is that death is speaking it, saying, I too am in Arcadia, uh, which basically means that even in the happiest of times, death is saying that decay and disaster are not far away. It is a, it's a type of um, memento mori, mm -hmm. which means, it's, memento mori is a Latin phrase that means remember you will die or remember your death. And it is, a, it's a thing that uh, is meant to help you live your, live, a, live your best life because this is not going to last forever. So you have to um, live a life that's worth living. Mm-hmm you know it's going to end and live your life more deliberately uh more consciously more intentionally knowing that you're gonna that you're going to die and it's all going to end um and it's interesting that that charles has that skull in his dorm room mm -hmm. so he's, he's a young college student he's you know 17 years old yep and and that's his first exposure to that concept and i wonder if he if he understood it I don't think Charles Ryder understood it, but no. certainly Evelyn Waugh put it there for a reason. Yeah. yeah, I think it was just one of those things where I'm trying to think of something that I had in college that I didn't really understand, but I just thought it was neat. Mm -hmm. Just something that you're like, oh, that's cool. It's a skull. It's got Latin on it. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. It's going to make my dad look askance at it and be a little scandalized when he comes to visit me. That's cool. Someone who did come to Charles's uh, dorm room uh, was his older cousin Jasper <laughs> and he looked askance at everything and he gave mm -hmm. Charles the, the scenes with Jasper are really funny because he comes in and he gives Charles all this advice which mm -hmm. he even then he's he's he has every intention of ignoring everything that Jasper says mm -hmm. and Jasper's giving him all this advice about who to hang out with he says oh yes the friends you make during your first year of uh, Oxford will be rather unfortunate you will spend your second year uh, getting rid of those friends you know basically mm -hmm. uh, it's really funny and Charles calls at least one of those visits from Jasper the grand remonstrance <laughs> in capital letters, you know, grand G, G capital G <laughs> remonstrance, uh -huh. which means uh, another way of saying that would be the great talking to mm -hmm. the grand lecture. And Jasper gives him that lecture after he's realized that Charles has, you know, done everything he told him not to do during his first year. Mm -hmm. and I think, is that the one that, um, that Charles concludes by saying, you know, I usually have a bottle of champagne right about now. Would you care to join me? <laughs> Knowing that, first of all, there's no way Jasper is going to join him in a bottle of champagne at 11.30 in the morning. Uh -huh. Second of all, he made that up. He really doesn't have a bottle of champagne every morning at 11.30. He just did that to annoy Jasper. Uh -huh. That's the only reason he said that. Sure. So, memento mori means remember your death. Um, basically, this world is not a paradise. We cannot find a true utopia here. And if you remember from our episode about dystopias, the word utopia was coined by Thomas More? Correct. Thomas More. Um, and it means no place. So this place cannot exist. It's an illusion. Right. And I think that Charles may not have known this, 
but I think Sebastian Flight knew this. Sebastian Flight is one of the members of this wealthy family that lives in Brideshead. And he and Charles meet very fortuitously because Charles, to the displeasure of his cousin Jasper, has rooms on the ground floor of the quad in Oxford. Right, facing the quad. Facing even. the quad. Yeah. And his first night there, somebody who he later finds out is Sebastian Flight, uh, just comes to the open window, leans in, and vomits on his on his floor, and then leaves. And that's when he first meets Sebastian. Yeah, there's this Flight. drunken revelry going on in mm -hmm. the courtyard of the the quad. This is why Jasper said, "Do not." This was a bad idea to have these rooms on the ground floor facing mm -hmm. the quad because this is what's going to happen. Yep. And naturally, Charles and Sebastian become best friends. Yes, and Sebastian he lives up to his name. He's very flighty, mm. isn't he? He's very childlike. He has a little teddy bear that he carries around everywhere named Aloysius. So yeah. we have this teddy bear here in the studio with us. Yeah. Aloysius. Mm -hmm. He he has all sorts of sort of vague thoughts like, oh, it seems like a lovely idea. And uh, and Charles will say, well, you can't just believe something just because you think it's a lovely idea. And he says, oh, why not? You know, he's very uh, like hoity-toity and just kind of blase, you know. Yeah. And um, obviously... As it often is, this is a mask for some very deep inner pain. I would say, I think Sebastian is probably one of my favorite characters in this book, and just in general. Mm -hmm. I I think he's great. I think he's a really good, um, a really good example of a human being. Not an example of a good human being, mind you, but he's an example of a human being who is trying his best and knows that he's not doing very well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's something where the whole family at Brideshead, all the flights, are Catholics. And and Charles says, Charles says, well, you, you don't seem like you're a much better person than I am. And Sebastian says, oh no, I am far, far more wicked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, probably because he is aware of what is wicked and what is not because of his upbringing, mm -hmm. yet he chooses to do things anyway, you know. So that whole phrase about Arcadia and uh, Memento Mori, this utopia isn't real, it's an illusion, and this happiness isn't going to last. So Sebastian Flight knew this, I believe, because I think he had a lot of good things, but they would get taken away or ruined somehow. And he tried to keep his friendship with Charles separate from a lot of things, from his, from his family life, for instance, because he knew, once you meet my family, you'll like them better than you like me. Mm -hmm. He wanted to, he wants to keep the good things all for himself because they just keep disappearing. Um, and he said at some point in the book, I should like to bury something precious in every place where I've been happy, and then, when I was old and ugly and miserable, I could come back and dig it up and remember." So he knows that happiness is a fleeting thing, and he himself seems like a fleeting thing. He basically disappears halfway through the book, um, wasting mm. away from alcoholism in foreign lands. Um, he was always looking to escape. Um, so he would sort of escape into drunkenness when he was visiting his family, and then finally he escaped into a completely different country altogether. 
Yeah, you really do feel quite sorry for Sebastian mm -hmm. as the book as the book goes on. Yeah, and he's there's something that Charles says to the family about Sebastian when they're visiting and he is off drunk somewhere. Charles says he's ashamed of being unhappy. It was during this term that I began to realize that Sebastian was a drunkard in quite a different sense from myself. I got drunk often, but through an excess of high spirits, in the love of the moment, and the wish to prolong and enhance it. Sebastian drank to escape. As we together grew older and more serious, I drank less, he more. You know, it's interesting. I also kind of bookmarked that that section of the book because that was a big contrast between the two mm. uh, about the reason for them overindulging in alcohol. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, what was it you were saying about about Sebastian's happiness and his conscience? So, so the thing about Sebastian is that he makes he makes a lot of mistakes, and he's not a very good example of a person, but he has a very acute conscience mm -hmm. and his his faith is something that he I don't know if he ever says this but he kind of lives in this way where he just oh you know I I believe in mercy and everything but I don't think I deserve it mm. I feel like if Sebastian didn't have his faith or a conscience he might have been a happier person, or at least a more content or cheerful person. Mm -hmm. That's what makes being religious so difficult. When you fail, it's more apparent because mm -hmm. you're trying not to do that. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. As opposed to, yeah, if Sebastian had just, you know, oh, you know, I'm a drunkard and I'm partying and I don't care. Yeah. Because I'm. Because eat, this is all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry. Uh huh. Because tomorrow we die, and so what? Yes, um, and so what? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And he would have been, had he been a character constructed like that, who basically mm -hmm. had no conscience and had no faith and had no conflict like that. Mm -hmm. He would have been a much less interesting character. Yeah. Because he has so much depth to him. There's a there's a section in the book I can't remember exactly where it is because, um, it's where Cordelia. Sebastian's little sister mm. is talking with Charles. Yeah. They're talking about Sebastian. And Cordelia says, Sebastian is holy. Do you remember that? Mm hmm And Charles is, what? How can you say that? He's a drunkard. He did all this and that. And and Cordelia's like, well, that's what you don't understand about Sebastian. He's he Holiness is part of him. Mm hmm And I thought, whoa, that's, you can cogitate on that for a while. That's so interesting. Yeah, um, because one, one thing you can say about Sebastian, no one's going to accuse him of being holier than thou. Yeah, he is very much mm -hmm. fully aware of what a broken yep. person he is. And that's... He says he doesn't deserve mercy, but, you know. Yeah. That's how you... He has, in some ways, even more right to mercy. Well, yeah, he has he, the humility. He's able to... Yeah. He's got a lot of humility. Yeah, yeah, he's very, very aware of 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 who he is. Uh -huh. um, yeah, so so sad and so interesting. One, that, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, a great a great literary character. And mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting that you say that. But he has flighty. He's flighty. He mm -hmm. considers everything impermanent. He considers himself impermanent. Yeah, he, like you said, he just kind of disappears from the story partway uh -huh. through. It's like, where did he go? 
I want to now segue into the humor of this book. When you read the prologue, I imagined a scene from Monty Python and the Meaning of Life. <clears throat> the scene, or any scene that Monty Python does where they're basically making fun of the military. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to take this, this, these scenes where Charles is in there with his military and cast them with the players from Monty Python. Like Michael Palin could play that commanding officer who says, go get the pair of scissors and cut that man's hair, you know. Um, it, it reminded me of, this, of the scene from Monty Python and the Meaning of Life where there's a, a, a parade of soldiers, they're doing drills. Michael Palin plays the drill sergeant, mm -hmm. a couple of soldiers are there, and the drill sergeant says, anybody here happy to be here or anybody else want to be somebody else, somewhere else? And Eric Idle speaks up and says, well, to be perfectly honest, Sarge, I'd rather be at home with the wife and kids. And to much to everyone's surprise, Michael Palin says, right, well, off you go then. <laughs> Anybody else rather be somewhere else than marching up and down the square? And every soldier raises his hands, I'd rather be at the pictures with my girlfriend. Right, well, off you go then. And every pretty soon everybody has left to go do something more interesting than marching up and down the square doing drills with the sergeant. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so that th these military scenes reminded me of, of that type of, of mm -hmm. humor because, you know, in the prologue, Charles and the captain, and they're just riding in this train, they're unloading things, and just mm -hmm. randomly, they, they re literally all realize this is a bloody waste of time. When are we going to see some action, some of them say. But they're very clearly preparing for the, basically, the end of the war and they're just biding time. And then I want to read some things from my favorite chapter. Uh-huh. So Julia is the sister, is Sebastian's sister of, of the four children of the, of the flight family. And Julia, you know, back in those days, it was important for women to get married. And, and especially she's a noble woman and mm -hmm. she's looking for a husband. And something about, she has this whole sort of a vision of who would be the perfect husband for her. Someone not very exciting, kind of okay. And and she actually, and, and, and they describe this, and Charles says that she, in fact, actually met a person like that who would have fit her description perfectly, mm -hmm. except uh, that person fell in love with her and offered her just the gift she had chosen. However, she sent him away moodier and more wistful than ever, for by that time, she had met Rex Matram. Mm -hmm. Okay. Rex Matram was a Canadian, and he was a climber. He, he had political ambitions, and that's, that's the reason he wanted to marry Julia. But he was already um, involved with this woman. He was literally having an affair with this woman called Brendan Ch Brenda Champion. Okay? That and sounds so, like a fake name, to be yeah. honest with you. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. It's really funny. But her name was Brenda Champion. And there was... they, they Brend, uh, Julia and Rex kept sort of crossing paths randomly at different functions and different things. And, the, and there's this great line that, that Wah writes. She wasn't necessarily interested in, in him at first, but certainly the fact of his being Brenda Champion's property sharpened Julia's appetite for him. In other words, she had this sort of like forbidden fruit uh, view of him. Yeah. And eventually... Eventually they meet, and uh, what does it say here? Um, they kept they kept meeting, they kept meeting, and uh, he took her to parties, and parties of her friends to ringside seats at prize fights. Introduced them afterwards to the pugilists, all the time, 
he never once really actually courted her. He just sort of started taking her, just being kind of one of his chums, you know, being hanging out. From having been proud of him in public, she became a little ashamed. But by that time, between Christmas and Easter, he had become indispensable. And then, without in the least expecting it, she suddenly found herself in love. Okay. That's so confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, th so she finds herself in love with this person. Yet, he's still going out with Brenda Champion, right? Mm -hmm. it, it came to her, to Julia, this disturbing and unsought revelation that she was in love with Rex. One evening in May, when she happened by chance to be uh, somewhere in London and saw Brenda Champion and Rex Mottram together, and it burned her up, mm -hmm. made her angry, right? She was so hurt and angry that she could barely keep up appearances through dinner. And as soon as she could, she went home and cried bitterly for 10 minutes. Then she felt hungry, wished she had eaten more at dinner, ordered some bread and milk and went to bed saying, when Mr. Mottram telephones in the morning, whatever time it is, say I am not to be disturbed. Next day, she breakfasted in bed as usual, read the papers, telephoned to her friends. Finally, she asked, did Mr. Mottram ring up by any chance? Oh yes, my lady, four times. Shall I put him through when he rings again? Yes. No. Say I've gone out. <laughs> when she came downstairs, there was a message for her on the hall table. Mr. Mottram expects Lady Julia at the Ritz at one thirty. <laughs> I shall lunch home today, she <laughs> said. That afternoon, she went shopping with her mother. They had tea with an aunt and returned at six. And then a servant, as they walk in, says, Mr. Mottram is waiting, my lady. I've shown him into the library. <laughs> oh, mummy! I can't be bothered with him. Do tell him to go home. That's not at all kind, Julia. I've often said he's not my favourite among your friends, but I have grown quite used to him, <laughs> almost to like him. You really mustn't take people up and drop them like this, particularly people like Mr. Mottram. Oh, mummy, must I see him? There'll be a scene if I do. <laughs> Nonsense, Julia. You twist that poor man round your finger. So Julia went into the library and came out an hour later engaged to be married. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I laughed at that, that was so funny. And she says, oh, mummy, I warned you this would happen if I went in there. <laughs> you did nothing of the kind. You merely said there would be a scene. I never conceived of a scene of this kind. Like, you're gonna get engaged. I didn't think that was happening. Uh -huh. And anyway, you do like him, mummy, you said so. He's been very kind in a number of ways. I regard him as entirely unsuitable as your husband. So will everyone. And Julia says, well, damn everyone. <laughs> so, so they're engaged to be married. All right. And then this is where some of the funniest stuff happens is Rex is not Catholic. And as you mm -hmm. said, both flights are Catholic. So, so Rex has to convert to Catholicism. And the scenes where he's getting his Catholic treatment, you know, mm -hmm. getting the catechism from this father, this, uh, this uh, Jesuit priest, mm -hmm. are really funny. Um, it, it, it was explained to him that mixed marriage was a very un unostentatious affair. In other words, he wanted like one of these great church weddings. Because mm -hmm. remember, he's a political climber. Right. He wants to be in this big wedding and everyone's going to be there in the society papers and photographs mm -hmm. and everything. And they're like, well, no, we can't do that because you're not Catholic. Mm -hmm. if, if we're going to have a mixed marriage like that, it has to be just often in some side chapel at best. Yeah. Most likely a, a justice of the peace type wedding. And he's like, not, I don't want to do that. He says, well, that's... If that's all it is, Rex says, it'll soon be unmixed. I'll become a Catholic. What does one have to do? So he 
goes and he gets instruction from this Jesuit priest who says he's the most difficult convert I've ever I have ever met and Mrs. Marvin says oh dear I thought he was going to make it so easy and the priest says that's exactly it I can't get anywhere near him he doesn't seem to have the least intellectual curiosity or natural piety and then later on like he just agrees with everything you know he just mm -hmm. like okay I'll say these are fathers and here's the Pope and okay just write it down in the book and I'm all about it that's what Rex is, is saying he just let just let me know what I need to do to sign on the dotted line and, and become Catholic so the, the priest comes over and he says lady Marchman you should have chosen one of the younger fathers for this task I should be long dead before Rex is Catholic. <laughs> this is not working. Mm -hmm. And I, he says, I thought you said it was going so well. It was, in a sense. He was exceptionally docile, and he accepted everything I told him, remembered bits of it, and asked no questions. Uh, but then he, he finds out that Rex has been learning some strange things about the Catholic Church. <laughs> For example, he says, he says, I've... Well, Father, I've had a long talk with a Catholic, a very pious, well-educated one, and I've learned a thing or two. For instance, that you have to sleep with your feet pointing east, because that's the direction of heaven, and if you die in the night, you can walk there. Now, I'll sleep with my feet pointing any way that suits Julia, but do you expect a grown man to believe about walking to heaven? And what about the Pope, who made one of his horses a cardinal? <laughs> And what about the box you keep in the church porch? And if you put in a pound note with someone's name on it, they get sent to hell. I don't say there may be a good reason for all this, he said, but you ought to tell me about it and not let me find out for myself. <laughs> and Lady Marshman says, what can the poor man have meant? You can see, said Father Mowbray, he's a long way from the church yet. But who can he have been talking to? Did he dream it all? And then they look at Cordelia, who's evidently like, trying to hold it together. Yeah. She says, Cordelia, what's the matter? What a chump! Oh, mummy, what a glorious chump! Cordelia, it was you! She's been punking him, <laughs> saying these insane things about what mm -hmm. the Catholic Church teaches. And he believed it all because he's so gullible. He's like, whatever, uh, the Catholic Church believes that the Pope made one of his horses a cardinal. Sure, no problem. He goes, and so, so Cordelia says, oh, mummy, who could have dreamed he'd swallow it? I told him such a lot beside about the sacred monkeys and the Vatican, all kinds of things. And I'm reading this, I'm just laughing my head off. Oh, oh poor Rex, says Lady Marchman. You know, I think it makes him rather lovable. You must treat him like an idiot child, Father Mowbray. <laughs> Cordelia's got me so muddled, I don't know what's in the catechism and what she's invented. <laughs> I wanted to segue into um, something that I was really struck by in okay. this book. Do you remember during our art article, our uh, podcast on uh, literature, popular literature versus mm -hmm. uh, literary fiction? When you're trying to write literary fiction, authors consider the language very important. Authors who are writing popular fiction don't consider that an issue to think about too much. But you can tell Evelyn Waugh was a really good writer. His prose is excellent. I so enjoyed some of these extended metaphors that he used. Yep. And I wanted to uh, mention those. The first was on the subject of Sebastian's drinking. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're all back at, at Brideshead for a vacation or something, and they had discovered, wow, Sebastian is really off his head drunk most of the time. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about it. Uh, with Julia and Lady Marchman, I reached deadlock. 
on this subject, not because we failed to understand one another, but because we understood too well. With Bridesaid, who came home to luncheon and talked to me on the subject, for the subject was everywhere in the house, like a fire, deep in the hold of a ship, below the waterline, black and red in the darkness, coming to light in acrid wisps of smoke that curled up the ladders, crept between decks, oozed under hatches, hung in wreaths on the flats, billowed suddenly from the scuttles and air pipes. That is his description of what this subject of Sebastian's yeah. drunkenness is like. It's like this fire wending its way around the hold of a ship. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like something that it's not to be talked of, is what they mm -hmm. say later. It's a typical dysfunctional family dynamic. We don't, mm -hmm. we don't talk about this. Uh, I thought that that was a really, really interesting metaphor. Uh, another metaphor he uses is what it's like interacting with Sebastian when you see him just doing these things over and over again. Mm -hmm. He talks about, he says this, a, a blow expected, repeated, falling on a bruise with no smart or shock of surprise, only a dull and sickening pain and the doubt whether another one like it could be born. That was how it felt sitting opposite Sebastian at dinner that night, seeing his clouded eye and groping movements, hearing his thickened voice breaking in ineptly after long, brutish silences. When at length Lady Marchman and Julia and the servants left us, Brideshead said, you'd better go to bed, Sebastian. <laughs> so that's what it was like sitting across from Sebastian mm -hmm. watching him. Just, it was like being struck repeatedly in a sore spot over mm -hmm. and over again. I thought that was a great metaphor. After this incident of Sebastian being repeatedly, you know, evidently a drunkard, mm. the, the way the family was dealing with it. Uh, Charles left. Mm. And he said, I shall never go back. I said to myself, a door had shut the low door in the wall I had sought and found in Oxford. Open it now and I should find no enchanted garden. That was a reference back to a in Arcadia days, he, he, he uh -huh. viewed his breaking in of his best friendship with Sebastian as opening a low door in a garden wall and discovering this enchanted uh -huh. place. Okay, well, open it now and it's done. Yeah. I had come to the surface, into the light of common day and the fresh sea air, after long captivity in the sunless coral palaces and waving forests of the ocean bed. I had left behind me, what, youth, adolescence? Yeah, so hmm. his illusions are basically shattered yep. of, of, of Arcadia. So Charles is also leaving Arcadia as he leaves Brideshead uh, Mansion. But there's more. There's more for Charles. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite extended metaphor in the book. <laughs> this is after he's been through everything with Julia, which we'll, get to, which we'll get to later. Another image came to me of an Arctic hut mm -hmm. and a trapper alone with his furs and oil lamp and log fire, the remains of supper on the table, a few books, skis in the corner, everything dry and neat and warm inside. Another Acadia, right? Mm, yeah. yeah. And outside, the last blizzard of winter raging and the snow piling up against the door. Quite silently, a great weight forming against the timber, the bolt straining in its socket. Minute by minute in the darkness outside, the white heap sealing the door until quite soon, 
when the wind dropped and the sun came out on the ice slopes and the thaw set in. A block would move, slide and tumble, high above, gather way, gather weight, till the whole hillside seemed to be falling. And the little lighted place would crash open and splinter and disappear, rolling with the avalanche into the ravine. So he's this, he's in Arcadia, his little snug little trapper's cabin, mm -hmm. but outside the storm is raging and this thing is going to come crashing down. Yeah. All of his illusions shattered again. <laughs> and uh, Evelyn Waugh is such a good writer that he revisits that extended metaphor, that one I just read, two mm -hmm. more times, and yeah. then he snaps it shut. Yeah. Like, like Emily Dickinson says, to let a poem snap shut. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's a very satisfying ending. Right. So we should probably, we, we can move on to another topic, but then I want to revisit that, the finale of that metaphor, because right. I thought it was so good. Another thing that I found really interesting was Charles is a painter. He says at the beginning of part two of this book, A Twitch on the Thread, he says, my theme is memory. Mm. Most of this book is a memory. There's this cool thing about him, him painting all of these, all of these old houses. He specializes in, he started off painting Brideshead, and then he started painting other old houses in England, preserving history, basically, because a lot of these places were being torn down to make way for apartment buildings. I watched the movie based off of this book by the same name, Brideshead Revisited. It was made in 2008. Um, and there's this, there's this scene that isn't in the book, but, or this conversation isn't in the book, um, but it's about why Charles is um, an artist. I think it's Anthony Blanche, who is this sort of rev revolting character who scuttles in occasionally. And everywhere he goes, he sows doubt, mm -hmm. pretty much, mm -hmm. where he confuses. Like he has that whole, there's a whole scene where Charles goes out for drinks with Anthony Blanche and Anthony Blanche just talks for four or five pages about all this stuff and leaves Charles totally confused, questioning everything in his life. Yeah, I wrote down here, Charles's reaction to spending the day with Anthony Blanche. That Didn't he just thing. get really, really drunk and go to sleep? Uh, something, let me see if I can find it. Because Anthony Blanche, you remember, well, the notes from your school were talking about this. Mm -hmm. They said, here's what you have to remember about Anthony Blanche. Mm -hmm. He is the devil. Every time he appears, it's like you said, mm -hmm. he sows doubt and people get confused. They become completely disoriented. His job is to go in there and mess people up. Mm -hmm. and that's what he does. Well, I've plainly bored you into a condition of coma. A good night. Sleep innocently. Mm -hmm. And then what Charles says is, but I slept ill. <laughs> Within an hour of tumbling drowsily to bed, I was awake again. Thirsty, restless, hot and cold by turns and unnaturally excited. I, I had drunk a lot, but neither the mixture of wines, nor the chartreuse, nor the Mavra Daphne trifle, nor even the fact that I had sat immobile and almost silent throughout the evening. Instead of clearing the fumes as we normally did, in some light frenzy of drunken nonsense, 
explains the distress of that hag-ridden night. No dream distorted the images of the evening into horrid shapes. The figures of nightmare were already racing through my my brain. And he was he was messed he was up. Messed up. <laughs> I repeated to myself Anthony's words, catching his accent soundlessly, and the stress and cadence of his speech. While under the closed lips, I saw his pale, candlelit face as it had fronted me across the dinner table. I mean, he has a nightmare after his day-long mm -hmm. encounter with Anthony Blanche. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> it messed him up. Yeah. Yeah. In the movie, there's this little scene where the first time he meets Anthony Blanche, Anthony says, What do you want to be an artist for? I mean, what's the point of it? Why don't you just buy a bloody camera and take a bloody photograph and stop giving yourself airs? Mm. And, um... Mm -hmm. And Charles says, because a camera is a mechanical device which records a moment in time, but not what that moment means or the emotions that it evokes. Whereas a painting, however imperfect it may be, is an expression of feeling, an expression of love, not just a copy of something. Wow. So that's... That is cool. Read that again. That is awesome. The whole thing? Yeah, the, the part, well, the a quote camera, from, yeah. A camera is a mechanical device which records a moment in time, but not what the moment means or the emotions that it evokes. Whereas a painting, however imperfect it may be, is an expression of feeling, an expression of love, not just a copy of something. Hmm. That's what artists do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that in the book, Charles is trying to find, right up until the very end of the book, Charles is trying to find what this life means. At the beginning of the beginning of the movie, not the book, the guy, um, Charles, he says, I don't really have anything that's my, that's my own that I haven't borrowed from somebody else except for guilt. Hmm. Which I found very interesting. Hmm. He sort of has this almost parasitic existence a little bit. Charles does. Where he doesn't really mm. have, he doesn't have his own family really. He doesn't have his own siblings. He just right. has his father who is extremely boring. And so he sort yeah. of yeah. ends up in, getting insinuated into the life of this family living in the Arcadia of being one of them. My theme is memory. Yeah. He doesn't know what it means. It's his theme and his theme is confusion. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I uh, I want to. That was really deep and really uh, sober and profound. Thank you. Because you talk about something snapping shut. Yeah. This this extended metaphor about Charles envisioning himself as a trapper, snug in his little cabin mm. with a blizzard raging outside. Maybe oblivious, maybe not. But the end is near. Yep. I want to just read. That the other two references that he makes to continue this metaphor over several several pages. Sure. Something about Julia's moods. Mm. There's a there's a lot. Julia's conscience really bothers her mm -hmm. with good reason. Her conscience also is well formed, and she does some nasty things, and it bothers her. But anyway, so Charles says, "I knew these fierce moods of Julia, such as had overtaken her at the fountain in the moonlight, and dimly surmised their origin." I knew they could not be assuaged by words, nor could I have spoken, for the answer to her question was still unformed, but lay in a pocket of my mind, like sea mist in a dip of the sand dunes. 
here we come, this cloudy sense that the fate of more souls than one was at issue, that the snow was beginning to shift on the high slopes. Mm. So he can see this little world that he's created for himself and that he's kind of been drawn into. It's, it's about to become upended. And then the finale, it literally is the last line of book two. This is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and offer a spoiler here. There is a sense it's throughout much of this book that Charles and Julia are going to end up together. Mm -hmm. But that is not going to happen because Julia's conscience will not allow it. And she says to him, I can't ever be with you, Charles. And he says, I know. And she says, how can you know? And he doesn't answer her question. He just says, what will you do? And she says, just go on, alone. How can I tell what I shall do? You know the whole of me. Now, we shall both be alone, and I shall have no way of making you understand. And Charles says, I don't want to make it easier for you. I hope your heart may break, but I do understand. And then here comes, the avalanche was down. The hillside swept bare behind it. The last echoes died on the white slopes. The new mound glittered and lay still in the silent valley. Mm, yeah. <sighs> Kablooey. His whole life is... That's it. Yep. Okay, now, we need to talk about why he comes back to this ending, this, yeah. this epilogue. Yeah. Because the epilogue, when you, when you read the epilogue, you're like, okay, here he is. Um, it, what, what happens in the prologue is they, they, they do this big shifting of the... Um, camp the 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 preparing for war camp of the british army mm -hmm. and they move to another to an area in the dark of night and as they unpack it in the morning and they realize where they are charles realizes wow we're on the grounds of brideshead mansion mm -hmm. that's where they billeted this this platoon or company of british soldiers yeah and so then that prompts his whole memory these book one and book two of these memories and then the epilogue comes and he finally goes in and he explores the house a little bit more. He's come to Brideshead again, Brideshead Revisited, mm -hmm. and it's basically all closed up, um, and no one's there, and... Some he, of it is ruined because the army has been there. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and he's, at the end, he's walking around, and he goes to, he goes to the family chapel that they have on the grounds, and, um, he goes in there into the chapel and it's all closed up and it's dark except for except for the uh the the, the lamp in there and he starts talking about the building and why do we build buildings why do we create things mm -hmm. and he says something quite remote from anything the builders intended had come out of their work and out of the fierce little human tragedy in which i played something none of us thought about at the time a small red flame, a beaten copper lamp of deplorable design, relit before the beaten copper doors of a tabernacle. The flame which the old knights saw from their tombs, which they saw put out. The flame burns again for other soldiers, far from home, farther in heart than Acre or Jerusalem. It could not have been lit but for the builders and the tragedians, and there I found in this morning burning anew among the old stones. So it's just a candle. And I think that he, at that point, 
finally sort of understands well he, he said he understood before I, I think he did understand what julia said why they can't be together but i think he was not in a place where he could accept it or believe or like he couldn't accept it or believe it because he still had distractions and he needed to have closure from visiting this place again visiting his arcadia when it was in ruins and seeing what's still there even when everything is ruined like sebastian became sort of like this ruin of a person he seemed like a beggar almost he was this sickly drunken emaciated guy in this <clears throat> foreign land but he still had that like light of his belief and his faith mm -hmm. burning in him like that that holiness that cordelia was talking about um that potential that mercy almost one of the other things one of the things that julia says when she they both know that they can't be together because she i'm not going to say what it is but she witnessed an event that sort of bolsters her faith you know and she says the worse i am the more i need god i can't shut myself out from his mercy this is what it would mean starting a life with you without him him um, meaning god yeah yeah i saw today there was one thing um unforgivable the bad thing i was on the point of doing that i'm not quite bad enough to do to set up a rival good to gods she kind of goes to the same place that sebastian does almost like into, so, a, into a self-imposed exile. Yeah. Charles has got this image of this avalanche, you know, destroying yeah. his whole life, basically. Yeah. It didn't destroy his life. What it destroyed were his illusions. Right. All of it gone, because he goes, yeah. like you said, he goes back to that chapel and he sees the one thing remaining. Mm-hmm. It's that, it's that candle. Mm -hmm. And that represents the sort of, that sort of core yeah. of goodness. Yeah. It's a sublime thing. Oh, yeah. It's something yeah. that is... It can't be really understood by reason. Mm. So this is again from the movie, um, which, which really, it really surprised me with how true to the book it was. Mm -hmm. And the Charles, played by Matthew Good in the 2008 movie, it's cool because he goes in there and he sees the lamp lit. Okay. And he goes up and he's going to snuff out the candle with his fingers, but then he leaves it and he walks away. Mm. So. His last lines in the movie are, Whether by fate or the divine ironies of some higher power, I find myself returned once more to Brideshead. Did I want too much? Did my own hunger blind me to the ties that bound them to their faith? Am I only now, shadowed by war, all moorings gone, alone enough to see the light? Oh, wow. So it's finally just him face-to-face -face mm -hmm. with God or ultimate truth or something like that. He yeah. doesn't have all of these people distracting mm -hmm. him. Yeah, or just or just circumstances. Awakening. Yeah. 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 Well, and you, oh, you know what else is interesting? Because you go back to the prologue. Yeah. He says, oh, oh, this is cool. What you just said there. He goes, here, at the age of 39, I began to be old. And then he says, here, my last love died. Mm. But, but then 
but then there's a kind of resurrection. Yeah, maybe he finds a new love. Maybe yeah. Maybe he finds a purpose. Yeah. Like, a reason why all of this happened. Well, and then some purpose to his life going forward now. Yeah. Yeah, because so, he got his closure from... He closure, like you said. He had to revisit Arcadia in ruins in order to kind of... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, to click that shut. Yeah. Shall we close this? So we will sign off now, and we will catch you next time. Um, I'm really happy how numinous that discussion was. That was great. Oh, yeah. Awesome. All right, guys. Take care. We'll see you later. Bye. Numinous. Not bad for throwing it all together this morning, huh? Yeah.